Hi there, and welcome to the Feeling the Sonic podcast. My name is Stephen Connor, and I will be your host for the next hour or so. This is episode 13, and the title of this episode is Adman Bob from The Guitar Show. This week's special guest had a very successful career spanning over 40 years in the world of advertising, while simultaneously pursuing a love of playing and collecting guitars. He is the brilliant presenter on The Guitar Show on YouTube, and so lots and lots to talk about. It is my very great pleasure to introduce you to Bob Wooten. Hi, Bob. How are you? Good morning, Steve. I'm very well, thank you. Good. That's great to hear. Uh, and what kind of what sort of week have you had so far? Uh, well, a bit of a busy week, really. Um, mainly good. I've had a chance to play a lot of guitar, uh, a really lot of guitar, even by my standards, which is great. Yeah. Um, not much on the work front, um, but uh, a few bits that I might talk about as we, as we go on talking about my collection of guitars and stuff like that. So I've done some stuff on that. Um, I'm limbering up to do my next piece of writing uh, it, with my advertising business hat on. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, we're in the middle of kind of approaching yet another lockdown and things are getting very quiet. Um, and, yeah, but know, I suppose the, the, the upside of that, of course, is as you just said, um, it allows us to pick the guitar up a bit more, play, play some more, because we've got you know, plenty of time to kill, haven't we? As you say, it's, if, yeah. if it's affecting business and people working from home and you don't have you know, the commute that we kind of generally had before all this kind of happened. So um, you know, we, do, we, do, we do have a bit of time on our hands. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but personally speaking, I, I have some hours to fill um, and it's great to do it with guitar. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the Americans have a great phrase for this. They call it woodshedding. Um, and it basically, you can sit down, and if you want to, I mean, you can sit and play your guitar for you know several hours uninterrupted, and you can get a lot yeah. done, I, either creatively or just exercise-wise. You know, so exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think it's important that we all we have something, you know, that we can do because the last thing, you know, to sit around twiddling your thumbs without any kind of creative output, I think, is is, is tough, isn't it? With, with your if you're bored or inactive for any length of time, it's uh, it's not good for the soul. Well, you read the papers, you know, and lots of people are using the phrase, everybody's self-medicating with booze and food. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I've got a kind of house rule that I've applied ever since I stopped full-time work. And, and I'm applying it even more um, vigorously now. Mm. I never watch daytime telly. No. And I, unless I'm out with somebody, I don't drink until the evening. Yes. Um, but I've been fortunate enough, actually, to get out for a couple of lunches. Um, which mm. are very bizarre in the in the industry that we'll touch on, you know, in our <laughs> advertise, yeah. advertising world. Um, <laughs> come on, Bob, you've had a boozy lunch or two. Uh, oh yeah. Do, oh, do you yeah. miss Do you miss those? I do actually. I frankly, yeah. I really do. I, I I know that they weren't particularly productive, and I know that I spent at least half my time talking bollocks, but I still enjoy. Them. <laughs> yeah, and that is a technical term, by the way. You, you, <laughs> you, yeah. <laughs> All right, Bob. Well, that's great. Um, so I think I'll. We'll basically we're going to need to um, 
let our listeners know uh, who you are and how you came to be doing what you're doing now and the kind of things that you've done throughout your career. Um, yeah. I mentioned in the introduction, you, you know, you're an ad man that, that you've been in the advertising industry for many years, you know, a kind of senior level, uh, an authoritative level, but you also have this kind of link with um, the love of music and playing guitars and collecting guitars, yeah. um, which will be, I think, fascinating. So before we get onto the main topic of um what i wanted to ask you particularly about is um the guitar show that you do with uh ramon goose yes um and i know that you're a presenter on, on there and everything but if we take it all the way back to when you were you know in your in your early teens or whatever when did you kind of get this interest in guitars and and what were the influences around at that particular time that got you started Okay, so you can probably you, your listeners will tell from my voice that I I'm I'm from a privileged education. Okay, so I was sent away to boarding school when I was thirteen, and boarding school is a very funny place. An all male boarding school is a funny place, apart apart from the sexual politics, which are fascinating. They'd only <laughs> they'd, they'd only got rid of uh, what what was called fagging, but was basically slavery between the older and younger boys. About six years before I joined the school, so there was still a very oh. strong lag of hierarchy. Mm. And as a newbie, especially a boy who hadn't been to a, a, a primary boarding school, so I was thrust into a boarding school environment at the age of 13, didn't know what to do. But the young boys take a very strong lead from the older boys, basically in everything, tastes, behaviours, the lot. Mm -hmm. And most of the older boys at that time, we're talking late 60s, were really into music. Mm. And they were all talking about uh, two bands. One was Cream, uh, yeah. who'd literally just released their last album, Goodbye. And the other band they were all talking about was the New Yardbirds, which you would know better as Led Zeppelin. Yeah. So I wrote to my father, because we wrote to our parents in those days. We didn't have phones. Mm -hmm. And we weren't allowed to use the phone, by the way, even the public phone. So we wrote. And I said, look, when I come home at half term, would you kindly pop down the record store and buy me two albums? One is by Cream called Goodbye. And the other one, all I know is it's called Led Zeppelin. I got home at half term for two and a half days free time with my parents. Very nice indeed. My dad gave me these records. I put them on the record player, listened to Led Zeppelin 1. Uh, for the geeks out there, by the way, my copy of Led Zeppelin 1 still has the turquoise lettering, which means it's a first edition. It's really rare. Fantastic. Right. Listen to it. I had no idea what I was listening to. I didn't know what was going on. But simultaneously, I felt something. This was very important. Mm. And that was it. That was the moment. My dad used to play guitar after a fashion. He had a bass guitar plonked around on that. So I started fiddling with it, learning a few riffs. Mm -hmm. Six, three months later I persuaded him to buy me a cheap electric guitar and away we went the rest has just been a landslide of obsession not put it down since yeah so what yeah. was it what was it do you think that kind of caught your attention then with the Led Zeppelin you know was it was it the the vibe or was it was it particularly the guitars well it, it's it's even now I mean I've had I've had 50 years plus to unpick it man and I still don't know because it, the, the overall impression I just I'd almost never had a feeling like that before. Like, yeah. you don't know what you're talking about here, but it's very important. Yes, yeah. I, you know, I just, I can't rationalise it, but I remember feeling it. And I I, I couldn't sing, and I certainly couldn't sing like Roman <laughs> Well, actually, so, hang on. Are you one of these people that say they, they um, when you're, when they're asked if they can sing, yeah. um, that the reply is, you know, I, I can, but I choose not to. Mm. Which is which is <laughs> which is something because I think as guitar That's players, you know, you you um, 
if you're noodling or you're you've got something coming up and you're and you're looking for melodies and things like that, you, you can you can sing. We I think we can all sing. It's just to, to what level, I suppose, and well, whether you choose to or not. No, you're you're right. I mean, for for many years, actually, until last year, I never did anything about it, and then I suddenly realised I needed to make myself more useful as a guitarist, and so I actually went and had some singing lessons, which now means I can do perfunctory backing vocals. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I, I, you know, I do that. So that was that. But anyway, I couldn't do Robert Plant, and I, I, I just kind of I. I think what caught me was the riffs because mm. music back in that those days, the late sixties, early seventies, it was all riff based, repetitive riffs, dang, 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 da, da, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was the riffs that caught me. And the riffs were really easy to learn, especially on a bass guitar that I could then transfer to a lead guitar. Because so for the first three months of my life, I my playing life, I spent playing bass, mm-hmm. um, playing those riffs, and they were easy. They were repetitive, you know. So they were my gateway. And, and really, when I got a six-string guitar and I realized that there were chords and you could strum it and all the rest of it, then the riffs melded with the chords and off we went. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, um, did you get into, into bands in those days and, or, what did, or how did you kind of progress from, you know, getting that first guitar after listening to, you know, the Led Zeppelin, which mm. kind of set you on your way then? Right. When, when so, did, you, did you meet other musicians? Did you kind of get together and form bands at all? Okay. So remember, I'm, I'm at boarding school. So let's go back yeah. to boarding school. The first thing is you've got, about 720 boys mm. in a boarding school separated into about a dozen different boarding houses of about 60 people each. Uh, in those houses, there were a lot of older boys who were really into music. They were getting all these albums. So I began to befriend these older boys and say, look, I know I'm just a bloody nipper, but I'm really into this music, your music, right? Mm. I've got the Zeppelin and the Cream album, and I've got uh, a few other albums coming and stuff like that, but what have you got? And so I started, I had a, um, much wider access. Now, you know, everybody was buying the same albums, so there weren't wasn't that much choice, but it was more choice than one young kid had. Yeah. So I had lots of access. That was to, to, to listening to the music. The other thing is in, in a boarding school, it's a closed environment. You had a lot of free time, but you have a lot of activities. Mostly it was sport, but there was also fantastic workshops. There was a great music program, and there were several bands in the school. Mm. So I began to befriend other kids in around the school who had guitars and began to jam, and we put a few bands together, and they were all terrible, but we would... <laughs> And we were all borrowing each other's amplifiers and doing what you do as young kids. Yeah. But but all of a sudden, you know, it 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 led to possibility. Instead of a boring Sunday with nothing to do mm. except except your homework and drink coffee, instead you could go go around a mate's room for three hours on a Sunday afternoon, no questions asked, and make yeah. a, make a make a racket, you know. Yeah. And I remember one of the albums that was kicking around at that time, or a little later, was the first MC Five album, which is. Still an amazing listen. It's it's almost controlled noise. It's such full-on live rock and roll. Mm-hmm. But I remember we used to listen to that as loud as our pathetic little stereos used to carry us. And we used to try and play stuff like that. And it was almost like pre-punk punk. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. I mean, so on so when you after the bands then and you know, and playing playing music and all that sort of stuff. Um yeah. did you then uh, it, you know the, the did you intimately know the guitar that you had? I mean, because when I'm, I'm referring to the guitar show now, where you go on and you do in-depth knowledge, intricate knowledge of any particular guy. I know we're going to come to the the, the fact yeah. that you, you're a collector and everything. Yeah. Um, but did you were you one of these guys that basically, when you pick the guitar up, you want to find out everything that it can do, what sounds you can get out of it? You know, is is or was it kind of you just something to play? Was it something? Did the interest in the guitar itself come a little bit later? Well, yeah, the interest in the guitar, 
for the guitar's sake rather than as a thing to play and pass the time on yes. later. Yeah, right? yeah. This was this was quite a cheap guitar for again just a bit of detail. It was actually made by a Japanese company called Zenta. It was imported and brought into one of the cheap shops down Charing Cross Road in those days. Mm-hmm. It cost thirty pounds, and it was a copy of a Mosrite guitar, uh, a Ventures model. That's what it was, and it was a pretty nasty guitar. It had very light strings on it. It sounded pretty hideous, and of course, I didn't own an amplifier. Right. So it's electric guitar with no amplifier. So I had to borrow an amplifier whenever. So I didn't have much opportunity to experiment with what the sounds the guitar could make. I was just learning the riffs almost acoustically. Yeah. But the great news about playing electric guitar unplugged, of course, is it's very quiet. And that means you can play it all the way through your homework time yeah. in, your, in your study. <laughs> yeah. No one can hear you. So while I was supposed to be working, I was playing guitar. But that's another story. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that's the early days. And, and then later, you know, obviously, as I played this more and more, and my dad realized I was serious and getting somewhere. He, mm. he Bless him, he encouraged me. And so he bought me a better instrument and so on. And off yeah. we went. But in the early days, uh, it, I, no, I, it took me a while to realize what I had in my hands. Yep. Okay. Well, I think from there then, so after you, um, I'm going to touch on the advertising world now, because okay. um, I know they are obviously intrinsically linked with you, you know, as, as a, as a personality. Hmm. Um, so how did you find your way into, into, into advertising? Then after you left school or you was at university and then did you know that you were going to get into that kind of world of, of, of advertising? Okay. So uh, I, I'm, my birthday is at the end of June. So I'm one of those kids that is sits between academic years, and I always managed to get into an academic year above me, mm-hmm. which meant that I took my A-levels and uh, got my A-levels when I was very, very young. I was still about 15. Right. Maybe 16. Very young. Mm-hmm. But th- th- So this is great because all of a sudden you bought a lot of time. But the bad news is you have no idea what you're doing. If your parents aren't giving you any good advice and my father wanted me to be an engineer which I didn't really want to be like like him mm. uh, even though I had maths physics and chemistry a levels and my school's careers advice was given what a fantastic and expensive school it was and the kind of advice they give out now it was abysmal it was non-existent so I'm basically an overqualified precocious kid with no bloody clue so I did what I did what everybody else around me was doing which is I signed up to go to university I went to university I went I got offers from every university I applied for, mm. um, including Imperial College, um, which would have been amazing, but I didn't have the maturity to understand that Imperial College is one of the great seats of learning on this planet. And so I eschewed that, and I went to University College London instead to read chemistry. Uh, I lived at home in my hometown and went to university. Bad choice. And I chose a subject that I was good at, not that I wanted to do. Bad choice. Mm. After a year, I realized I hated university, hated student politics. Um, The only thing about it good was I was in a lot of bands. So I threw university in. I left it after a year. And then I suddenly realized, shit, you've got to go and earn a bloody crust now, mate. Figure it out. (laughs) I mean, I was really making decisions in hindsight. I wasn't making any active decisions. And so I looked around at what I could do and everything I could do, law, accounting, computing, all those things required further study, which I didn't want to do. Mm. And eventually, in desperation, I woke up one morning and thought, you've got to think laterally about this. Who do you know who's in work and enjoys what they do? Most of my friends were students. Two of my friends seemed to like what they were doing, and they were in work in London. So I phoned them up and said, what is it you do? And both of them told me, coincidentally, I didn't know this, they did the same thing. Mm. They were media buyers in advertising agencies. Right. So I said, could you, um, could you get me an interview, perhaps? And they said, well, with, you, with your English and your maths, you've 
absolutely walk it. So the, I got two interviews, one at JWT and one at Lintas, the big ad agencies of the time. Well, yeah. Uh, the Lintas offer was rather better, so I took the Lintas offer, even though JWT was a better agency. <laughs> Nevertheless, I took that job, and that was my way into advertising. I, yeah. it, in other words, Steve, I had virtually no idea what I was doing. Yeah, I think that's a fairly consistent story, actually, because I mean, mm. I've, 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 we've got connections in in, in that industry um, mm. with with me as well. I'm you know, uh, running a media company, um, yeah. in our paths have crossed on that. So, but actually, I've, I've been actually quite surprised when when I do talk to people in ad agencies, uh, and obviously I'm selling to them and pitching to them and everything. Um, and I always make the point of saying, you know, how did you how did you get started? The same question I just asked you, you know, mm, mm. Um, and a lot of them, they do kind of just kind of fall into it that they sometimes they go to interviews that they're not actually they're not actually entirely sure what they're actually applying for. Mm. It's just a job within advertising. Yeah. Um, but there are so many strands to, to it, aren't there? Whether you're a buyer or, you know, if you're in, in media sales or you work for a creative agency or a full service agency, you know, there are so many kind of uh, positions within that within that marketplace that um, it's open to you know, lots of people and a great career. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, I think you tend to find more people of this sort of clueless variety, like I'm describing myself. <laughs> you, tend, you tend to find them, you, you used to find more of them in media, yeah. because media wasn't really known about until you went into advertising. You're the creative, you could see the ads. You, I want to paint and draw ads, or I want to be a suit, in which case you probably came out of university off the milk round. But media was kind of a bit below stairs. A lot of lot of guys I know and grew up with, they actually started when they were like 16 in the post room. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so the, 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 there was a sort of internalized apprenticeship kind of mechanism. So so I, even though I had the beginnings of a, a graduate persona, I didn't have a degree, and mm -hmm. I went in basically on a low salary, just doing the filing, making the coffee, and picking up the craft and the skills from the people around me who were older and yeah. more experienced. Yeah, I suppose that's you know learning from the ground up. You know, it gives you a great, um, yeah, you, you yeah. a great start to it. And obviously, and as you as your career progresses, yeah. of course, and the further up the chain you go, you know, obviously it all goes down to fantastic experience. So, yeah, yeah, you know. So yeah, so okay, so we're going to go back to the music now. Then, so while okay. you were doing your, uh, you know, in this in the industry, then you're in your ad agency, the first ad agency. Yeah. As you're progressing through that, presumably you met people in media, uh, in in that space that also had the, the the musical interest you know like you did at school and they kind of follow on from there well strangely that happened rather later right um, in the early days in my very early days in advertising it was a clerical job and it was basically nine to five with a couple of drinks on thursday night mm. right so it wasn't very demanding and if i go back to my parents house where i lived and i bought a little flat i could go to my flat and i got home and i'd cook myself something to eat watch a bit of telly and i'd play guitar but it was very solitary i was hanging around with a few people and playing music but not very much and then, I'll make this as quick as I can, when I got a little bit more senior in advertising, the job became completely absorbing. And so mm. between the ages of about, let's see, I started in advertising when I was 19. By the time I was 24, 25, I was doing well. I was yeah. doing really, really well. And I was working damn hard. And by the time I was 26 through 30, 35, I was really doing well, but I was working all the time. Yeah. Uh, I remember one year, uh, I had a, I went to see my parents for Christmas, came up, up a few days after Christmas, went back to work and didn't have a day off until my birthday at the end of June. Wow. Right. Yeah. I, I was, and, and, yeah. well, it, I, I was just, and I was, I was really enjoying it. And I was really enjoying what I did and the success and the financial success, but I literally mm. had no time. So I was letting my friends drop by the wayside. I was hardly playing guitar. 
Uh, certainly didn't have time for girlfriends or anything like that. It was just ridiculous, you know. Yeah. And 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 but that didn't last forever, so it wasn't unhealthy. If it if it prevailed for like five or ten years, I'd be I'd be sick. But I, well, I'd say you burn yourself out, wouldn't you? With, no, totally. with, with that kind of um, you know totally. le- level of yeah commitment. But what it did do is meant it meant I did propel myself. So by the time I was thirty, I was actually a full equity partner in a bloody hot London agency. Yeah. And that was so I got I got a result out of it. Anyway, mm. keep going forwards and quickly. Probably not until I was in my late 30s do I, did I actually carve out enough time and space in my mind to go, do you know what? You used to play the guitar all the time. Now you just pick it up for five minutes a week. Mm. You still got a nice pile of acoustic and electric guitars. You, you, play them. So yeah. I did. Yeah. And then I went out and bought myself quite an expensive electric guitar, which kind of stared at me and said, play me. <laughs> and it all came back again. And so probably from the age of late 30s, the interest started to come back. And that was about the time, incidentally, when... I did meet up with some like minds. I, I was basically at an, an advertising awards event and uh, the, the evening wasn't going very well and everyone was getting pissed up and looking forward to dancing. And I remember the disco finally came on. The first song they played was Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought to myself that night, I'm going to put together a band of advertising folk who are going to play events like this. And the first song we're going to learn is addicted to love, and I did. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and that band, that band, although I'm not in it anymore, that band has evolved. Yeah. Um, but it still exists, and it's a very, very good band. It's called The Breaks. You've been to see them. I have, yes. Um, on more than and, one occasion, yeah. Yeah, and and they're 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 a very very good band indeed. So I mean that 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 was that that was the genesis of that whole thing. Yeah, that's I mean that's really interesting actually where it came from because I didn't realise actually as you say I have seen The Breaks and um, I don't know them personally the guys but i kind of know of them um but they um all you know extremely talented musicians um mm-hmm. that work in in that in that space as well of course um right. but i'm just going to go back bob to your that kind of work commitment and the ethic and the work commitment that you had yeah um it, but it kind of got you to the top of the tree as well didn't it because you were a director at isbar which for people that may or may not know is the inc- I only found out this yesterday all these years i've worked in the marketplace <laughs> and i was struggling yes and i thought Oh my God! What does that stand for again? I can't remember. I just refer to it as Isbar, but of course it's the. Um, I'll let you elaborate on it, but it's the Incorporated Society of British Advertisers. So you represented the kind of the, the, the kind of top spending advertisers in the in 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 the UK. Is that correct? That's How it right. works? Yeah, that, that's right. Basically, in in every line of business, you have these things called trade associations. The trade associations exist as a kind of interface between the industry and its its constituents and government and regulators yeah um and they, they they basically they lobby for their members their, their membership organizations and they lobby for their industry members and they advocate certain positions i mean for example in lockdown you're hearing a lot from a business called uk hospitality and its chief executive kate um i know her second in command jackie because we used to work together at isba mm-hmm. and this kate woman my god she is an effective advocate and lobbyist i mean she's always on the news putting the the, the the plight of her members, the hospitality industry during lockdown. Mm. She's brilliant at it. Um, so I was basically doing that for the clients of the advertising industry. So I was representing the clients. There were other bodies representing the ad agencies or the media uh, and so on, but I was representing the clients. And I, I, I got that job, again, sort of half accident, half design. Somebody phoned me up and said, I, I was actually languishing between jobs at the time. Uh, not a good part of my life, which we might come back to. But, yeah. but um, And somebody phoned me up and said, there's an ad appearing tomorrow in the 
paper, have a look at it. And I looked through the paper and I phoned him up and said, there's only one ad it could possibly be. You are joking, aren't you? That bunch are a bloody joke. And he said, exactly. I'm a member of it. They need somebody who can sort it out. Yeah. The new boss is great. You need to go and have a chat with him. And I went and had a chat with him. We had a fantastic um, conversation. Um, by the way, the reason I got the job, well, I'm putting myself down here, but the reason I got the job is I told him a joke. I said, do you know um, what the difference between a Premier Crew and a Grand Crew Chablis is? <laughs> and he said, well, I, I, drink, I drink them both. I love them both. But what is the difference? So I said, who's paying? <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not very funny, but it's no, got the job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> I think so, I, so I got the job at Isbert. Um, and yeah. I'm delighted to say you found it difficult to find out what it stood for because the Incorporated Society of Bloody Anything, yeah. right, which happens to be Isbert, um, doesn't sound very exciting. So we, over the last 10, 15 years, we just focused on the initials and tried desperately to lose the incorporated Victorian, yeah, Edwardian, exactly, exactly. quill pen, frock yeah. coat. And we, <laughs> and, and we succeeded. It's now a pretty vibrant organisation run by, run by a very effective guy called Phil Smith. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And um, you know, your legacy is obviously is obviously there. Um, just just on the, the lockdown thing, and and just have a quick touch before we go back to the music side of things. Yeah. yeah. If uh, where we are now, then um, in in your experience in 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 you know recession times and things like that, and and marketing budgets do generally tend to get hit quite badly, don't they? When when brands look to you know realign or or go with the yes. market, the market flow, and, and and what have you. Yes. Do you think it's important that brands keep advertising and continue to advertise through times like that or or do you think it's right that they do kind of cut back a bit if the if the consumer you know uptake is not as high as you know whatever whatever time of year it might be or the, the kind of the life we're living at the moment i mean how, how does it work with um in your experience with brands keeping themselves front of mind okay so there is quite a good body of evidence to that that more than suggests, actually, evidence is that an, a brand that spends through hard times comes out of those hard times into better times ahead of the pack. There's quite a lot of evidence about that. Yeah. So all things being equal, it's a good idea to continue to support your product and service through hard times as well as good. Yeah. There's a big caveat, though. You've got to be able to afford to do it. Yes, right. Okay. And at the moment, I think this is the, the most severe sharp and deep economic shock mm. that anybody can remember yeah and there are a lot of um businesses not just brands and products but businesses that are you know facing extinction ex yeah. existential crisis yeah at, at that point however convincing the arguments about well you know if you spend through through hard times it'll be good in the good times you go Listen, we can't spend because if we spend now, there are going to be no good ties. We are not going to exist. Yeah. yeah. So that's the big caveat. But I mean, for the brands, for all the big companies that have actually been sensible, they've got good financial governance, they've got good cash management, they're sitting on cash, then my counsel would be continue to support your products. Perhaps not at, you know, plum weights, but still mm. continue to support your, your products and services yeah. because you will you will come out ahead. But for those people who can't afford it, I'm not going to be rash and stupid and say, let's piss some of the money that you haven't got away, shall we? <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There is that is a huge caveat. Actually, isn't and it? actually but, um, I, I'm yeah. I, I am surprised about how given how dreadful this economic situation is, I am surprised about how relatively resilient the advertising industry has been. I mean, clearly cinema has fallen off a cliff because cinemas had to close. Yeah. 
the out-of-home industry, you know, where you and I have a lot of common form, yeah. that, that had a, a big difficulty as well. Yes, of course. Television, radio, print, um, and obviously online. Well, online hasn't really seen a blip at all because online, all, all that on, what's happened in online is instead of growing at 20% a year, it's now sort of grown a few percent a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other media have actually, you know, they've worked really, really hard to maintain their position, but they've actually held pretty good, you know? They're yeah, still, they have. They're, they're still viable, which I think is amazing because, I mean, it could it could have been a lot worse. I mean, advertising is normally one of the first lines of money that a finance director will cut when times are really tough. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, in my own experience, and and you know, running my own business in in this sector, mm. uh, we've had to switch our proposition. You know, from the high street, as you say, with you know, with out of home media or outdoor media, with footfalls being down, you know, for obvious reasons uh, in, in lockdown, um, we switched our proposition. But it's kind of we've gained on that side where we've lost on on the, on the high street side. So, um, right. but it's all about in the current state where we are now. It's about you know, how do you reach consumers at home? You know, so if you've got something that can, uh, here I go. I'm here with my pitch now. Bob can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to reach audiences at home, then you come to Confero Marketing because we have this concept that basically um, we deliver product samples and mes- uh, marketing messages to customers at home through their online parcels. So it's just something that we've kind of picked up on uh, in huge numbers as well. I have to say, but I will move on. Um, cool. Back to you. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, so all that sort of stuff is, is you know it's great counsel I think in in terms of you know brands and services and, and keeping going which we all have to do. Yeah. Um, so on the music side of things, and I'm just gonna so we've we've kind of touched on the, um, I mentioned at the beginning the guitar show that you do, which um, yes. I'm a big fan of and um, subscriber on YouTube. So I was I was actually you know really pleased and you know for you with the the subscriber numbers that you've got. I mean there's what nearly thirty odd thousand on there. Um, so how did you come to be involved with that, with uh, Ramon then? And um, in, in terms of, and can you describe what you actually do on the show and how it kind of works? Okay. Um, I'll tell you how I met him because that's the fir- that was the first yes. break. Yes, yeah. So I met Ramon. I'd, I'd been aware of him on various uh, online channels, you know, Facebook, Instagram, yeah. a couple of the guitar forums and stuff like that because he's quite well-known, quite a good guitar player and quite, you know, about town. Yeah. So I was aware of him but didn't have a relationship with him. And then I... Uh, I was offered a pair of guitar amplifiers by an obscure Swedish maker. They're ve- they're very good. Uh, they were pretty expensive, but the whole package, uh, basically three pieces, was 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 actually pretty attractive. And I thought, yeah, I'll buy it and I'll spend all that money which I've got at the time I had the money, and I'll keep one and I'll sell the other amplifier to kind of fund some of the purchase. And I uh, so I acquired these things, and I knew that Ramon played the same amps. They're, they're made by a man called Tommy Cougar in Sweden, and they're called Mystic Blue. Um, Mystic, yeah, mystic amps. And Mm. anyway, I got these amps, I got them home, plugged them in, they were fantastic. And so I made contact with Ramon, who had heard of me anyway, because he'd figured that I was the bloke that had bought these mystic amps. And he and me, and a fabulous guitar player called Philip Sace, who's uh, originally Welsh, but lives in America. uh, We are the three guys who are best known for playing these amps. That's how I met him. We became friends. We started playing together, jamming together. He came and sat in with my band now and again. He's a wonderful guitar player. He's way better than me. Um, uh, and uh, he has a particular specialism, which is that he's done a lot of travel and time in North Africa. And he uh, he plays a, a style of music he calls desert blues, which is basically melding um, North African desert music and, and rhythms uh, and scales and timbres wow. with, with modern blues. 
which is very interesting because the blues, of course, comes from uh, slaves in the Southern American states. And where did the slaves come from? Africa. So what he's doing with his music is basically joining the two ends of a circle. Up. Amazing. Uh, and it's really wonderful to hear him playing that. Anyway, so we, you know, we got friendly and got talking and playing together. And then he told me you know, he had this guitar show, which I'd never heard of. So I subscribed to it, had a look. And then he said, would you like to, you know, he said, you, you, you're pretty presentable. Um, do, do you want to, do you want to, you know, do a, do a show with me? And I said, yeah, sure. Let's talk rubbish about some guitars. You know, he said, look, you've got some lovely guitars. Let's mm. put some of them on the show, blah, blah, blah. And so I started doing it. And yeah. anyway, that I was very afraid at the time that the trolls would all come out and say, who's this posh, you know, stale, pale, <laughs> twat? Um, you know, and all the rest of it, you know, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't full of self-confidence. You know. But we did, we did a show and then I watched it back and I thought, well, it's not, it's not too shabby. And then I did the thing that you're supposed never to do. Never read the comments. Yeah. I read the comments and lo and behold, with the exception of one or two, yeah. which even they weren't very spiteful. All the comments were unbelievable. Yeah, they were. Yeah, I read the comments on there. I mean, as you say, you do. Yeah, yeah I, su I suppose it's inevitable in um, in this day and age where you you do get these fools, shall we say, that you know these key yeah. keyboard warriors that will watch something and whether they're challenging you. But it, why make it so personal? You know, there's and something that's not actually related to what you were talking about on the, you know in the first place. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the easiest thing to do if you're sitting, you know, like I'm sitting in 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 my office behind my desk mm. with my computer in front of me. It's the easiest thing in the world for me to think there's nobody else around me. I can say what. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like. cheap shots, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, and, and it's so and, unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, spit bile, you know. But actually, I yeah. was amazed how yeah. positive the comments were. Anyway, so yeah. you know, R Ramon said, "Look, you know, it's a really good show. We got quite good viewing, and you've got some great feedback. So, you know, do you want to do it again?" And I yeah. said, "Yeah, it's great fun." Yeah. And you know now, if you go onto the guitar show, I, I I don't know how many shows I've I've done. It feels like between probably between twelve and twenty, and 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 we keep going. We keep having ideas for new shows. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, the the only thing is at the moment I'm a bit dependent on him, my partner, for for the technology because I I don't have um, a good camera that I can record a show with. But my son is actually about to get a camera that I can use to record a show. I've got good mics, mm. so. All of a sudden, I'll be able to upload shows instead of having to get Ramon around here. Like in lockdown, it may it may eventually be illegal for him to come around here to record a show. In which case, I can do it by myself yeah. and upload. And so that that's that's the plan. I've certainly got two or three of my mates uh, who I want to get on a show with me, and then we'll upload as the guitar show. But it, it's first and foremost, it's it's Ramon's train set. It's a bit like he's the BBC and I'm the newsreader. Yeah, okay. Because the one I saw just recently, I was I was hoping to maybe get um, a grab of the news that I saw you guys play was with um, uh, you were jamming with uh, Marcus Cliff. Oh yes, yes. So amazing, you know, and what a career he's had, hasn't he? With um... he's he, he's a lovely man. I mean, I'm, I met him through another mutual friend. One of my good friends is a guy called Alan Darby. Uh, Alan Darby's played with Van Morrison, with Eric Clapton for a long time, with Robert Palmer, mm. um, and a host of other people. Alan, Alan is a, a real face in, in the guitar world. He's he's become a very close friend of mine. He's a dear friend. He's also effectively is my mentor. He's taught me a lot about how you really play guitar. Yeah, well, I mean, um, well, to have that sort of level of oh, yeah, of, uh, yeah, men yeah uh, mentorship. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, un unbelievable guy. You know, mm. such such an honour to be his friend. And anyway. Uh, he, he, you know, I hang out with him quite a lot, and I met Marcus through him. Uh, and Marcus has become a friend in his own right, uh, and he came around to the show for us. He's, he's uh, again, he's a, a wonderful musician. He's a proper, proper musician. And although he's 
best known for playing bass. He's a fabulous guitar player. Mm. And, and actually, he's a pretty great keyboard player, and he studied jazz at Leeds. You know, he's got a proper music education. He's, he's not like me tinkering around. He, he does, it, does it well. Well, he's played with uh, Mark Lockford, Dire Straits, of course, wasn't he? Is, is he and, you know, still involved yeah. with that today? I, I think he, he's, still, he's still friendly with Mark. Mm. Um, he's still involved with him, but I don't think there's anything for him to do at the moment. His main gig at the moment is playing for Paul Jones in the Manfreds, so the, the, the Manfred man take, take around. But, of course, you know, he's constrained at the moment because you know, they, they can't play either. So he's, he's doing lots of work in his studio. Um, he has a number of sidelines. He, he, um, he, because he has his own recording studio at home, a proper one, um, he, he does a lot of work in terms of session recording for other people. They send him files and he, uh, you know, like, like, like you do with mm. your guitar, yeah. Jordan, um, send, him, send him files and he'll send you a, that, that's a guitar right, yeah. So that's Yeah, that's how I... Um, that's what the guys are doing nowadays. And he, he also produces sounds for some of the new, uh, new era of um, modeling amplifiers. He produces sound packages for those and sells them. So he's got a few sidelines yeah. going. But, you know, all, all these guys, you know, if they can't... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty much at a standstill at the moment, isn't it? But as I say, I can't wait to get yeah, to get yeah. to, go to a gig. Um, you've almost forgotten what it's like. You know, I just love live, live music, well, particularly, you know, guitar bands that, are, that I'm you know, a big fan of. So... Um, it's tough. Uh, uh, well, an another couple of guys that I, I I got to know, you know, over the last two or three years, uh, a father and son um, coupling, um, Artie and, well, Jake and Artie Zaitz, um, who are, uh, I think they're originally Polish. Uh, they live over here. They're both guitar players, but Artie, who is the son, also plays Hammond organ and drums and bass. He's multi-talented. Mm. And they, um, they hold a regular jam, uh, and which they're still managing to do. They held one at uh, Elephant Castle. Um, They've had it on for the last three weeks or so um, at Mercato Metropoliteo, the place is called. And I went down there for the jam on Monday night and had a great outing. Just had my 10 minutes yeah. of time, like, you know, yeah. but played well, sounded good, all the rest of it. Lovely to see the guys again. The only trouble was it was probably the most dangerous place that I've been in since February because, you know, there were a lot of people in there and there weren't a lot of masks yeah. and mainly young people. And, you know, I kind mm, of thought to myself, yeah, what am I doing here? <laughs> this, this is, I mean, I'm having a bloody brilliant time meeting everybody, but this is risky yeah, business. Yeah. You know? But, but, you know, apart, apart from that, and, you know, if, if, if the lockdown is gradually increases in severity, mm. then that's going to have to shut down again as well, in which case we're all just, yeah, well, because of course you're in London, aren't you? And, 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 and you were actually, you were, you were a Londoner, yeah. then, Bob. I didn't realize that you were actually um, from London itself. Yeah. I was actually born in in a clinic just uh, off Wigmore Street. Oh, right, yeah. I lived in on the top of Baker Street for the first twenty two oh, years of my life. So I am truly yeah, essential. you are. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm going to go back onto the um, the guitars. There. So we touched on the guitar show, but the reason that you yeah. do some of the, the the presenting on there is that you are presenting and introducing some of your guitars that you own as a collector. So when did your going back, obviously, with the love of guitars and the Led Zeppelin connection and everything, when did you kind of start buying guitars as a collector with the whole fascination of, you know, do, you know, looking for, you know, whether it's an antique guitar or, you know, because I know yeah, you have yeah. a, was it a 58 um, Gibson Les Paul Sunburst, which is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Um, but you've got lots of guitars, and so without giving too much away, I suppose, do you do you want to describe your collection and and what how, why you do what you do? Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't want to come over in this interview as somebody who doesn't take responsibility for their life. But again, this is something that if you, you becoming a guitar collector is something that creeps up on you. It's not an mm. active decision, and indeed, I know drummers who've got twelve or fifteen guitars. Yeah, right. 
collecting guitars, there are quite a lot of people who are listening to this who won't even think of themselves as guitarists will suddenly realise they've got three or four guitars. Yeah. In <laughs> they're, they're very lovable yeah. things. So, so in other words, you, what you do is you begin to acquire and accrete guitars almost if you're not mm. even a player. If you're a player like me, then it's not long before, you know, you say, well, I've got to have a Gibson, I've got to have a Fender, I've got to have a six-string acoustic, I've got to have a 12-string acoustic, mm. I've got to have a bass, that's five. You've got yeah. five guitars already. It's a bit like, and each of them is like a tool. It's like you can't, you know, you can't hit a nail in with pliers and you can't pull a nail out with a hat. Well, you can. Claw <laughs> hammer. You know, yeah. You know what I mean. You know, a claw hammer. Yeah. But so in other words, they're just tools. But then then you kind of have get a little money and you think, well, I quite fancy a blue one or a green one or a pointy one or whatever. And then you've got six guitars. And so in other words, I probably had about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 guitars. And that wasn't collecting. That was just yeah. acquisition. And then at the same time, Ever since those early days of Led Zeppelin, going back to your question about the Gibson, all the guitar players that I worshipped, starting with Eric Clapson, Jeff Beck, um, Peter Green, Jimmy Page, Duane Allman, Paul Kossoff, Mike Bloomfield, blah, blah, Lots blah, they can go yeah. on forever. You look at all the old photographs of them, they're all playing yeah, that Les Paul. beautiful. So I, 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 ever since I was a child, I kind of, there was, there was something deep in the back of my head going, hmm, one day, eh? mm. one day, one day. And finally, it, well, it wasn't until um, my wife and I had our son. He was, he was born and I got used to the idea of, you know, I was you know, earning a living, running a home, uh, bringing up a family, paying for private education and all the other outgoings you have. And I thought, you know what? I can afford this. I, I, mm. This is okay. Got a, bit of, got a bit of money spare. And so I, I, I thought, right, now's the time. Now's the time. So I went out to a few of the guitar stores and I said, right, guys, I'm in the market. But here's the catch. I don't know enough about these things yet to know what I'm buying. So what I need you to do first is educate me before yeah. I buy. And most of them went, oh, thank you. <laughs> one, of them, one of them took me very seriously. And he kept on phoning me up and saying, I've got something coming through. It's not right for you, but pop in the shop and play it and you'll get a feel. Yeah. Right? And lo and behold, he did. He really gave me a very, very rapid education into what I was feeling for and looking for, all of which I liked. And then eventually, uh, I was actually looking for a gold Les Paul from 1958, as it happens, which it, which at the time was about fifteen thousand mm. quid, yeah, a lot of money. But anyway, he turned up one day around at my house with this sunburst, and I opened the case and I just went, no, 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 come on, these these are out of my league, man. These are too expensive. And he said, look at it. This it's a good one. It's the last one you'll see under 30 grand. Huh. And uh, so I kind of thought about it a bit. And then I said to my wife, look, I've, I can afford half of this guitar. I want to put the rest on the mortgage. Uh, you mortgaged your the house. Mortgage was in, <laughs> well, well yeah. we, we, had, we, we didn't have a very big mortgage on the house. But yeah. We had a mortgage. I was paying it off. Yeah. I could afford to pay more. And the mortgage was in her name because we, took, we bought the house when I was unemployed. Right. So, so I said to her, so I want to put it on the mortgage she said well is is that wise and i said yeah we can afford it it's no problem but uh, you have to sign the papers because the mortgage is in your name and she said so i can stop you doing this <laughs> yeah yeah anyway bless her bless her she she let me and so that was really when things started and as soon as i got used to owning that and realizing that although i dumped a lot of money into this thing i hadn't got rid of that money because i the price was rising so i could actually sell yeah, yeah, for yeah. more and then i started Filling in all the gaps, buying all the other guitars that I'd always dreamt. So, taking you back, how long? The, so, how long ago was that then, Bob? That when you got that, um, you know, you made that decision and made the call to get to go with that Les Paul. 
Right. So my son is 23. And so it would have been about 21 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. 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 And you have, I mean, during, during which, during which time, you know, that particular instrument, you know, these are utterly iconic yeah. instruments and that instrument in particular has just gone, you know, gone from being a very expensive purchase indeed into being a ridiculous. Yeah. But you, but you play it though, don't you? It's not something that you just kind of stick on the wall and, um, you know, and leave there. You actually get hands on. And one of the shows on the guitar show, you, you do a full rundown on that, don't you? I do, I do, and I do play it. Um, uh, and and indeed, if I've got a gig, if I'm doing a gig that is a really, really safe yeah. gig, you know, in other words, I know the venue, I know most of the people in the audience, right? It's a small room, and I'm in there next to. It. I will even gig that guitar. Very few people who own them take them out and play them. Yeah. And it's it's amazing to gig because mm. the reason that they're so valuable is because they're so beautiful. yeah, they are fantastic, beautiful, you know? and and just stunning to look at as well. I mean, I just I think yeah. I'm one of these people yeah. that I my experience of buying guitars is because I like the look of it. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about mm -hmm. the guitar. Just the fact I want one because I don't know. Maybe Noel Gallagher plays that particular particular guitar. Well, you'd, you'd go for a Gibson three five five. Exactly. Five, you? you know. So, but I yeah. don't know. You know what I mean? But I, I don't. I don't know anything about it apart from the fact that I, I like it because I, I like when I see Noel and he's and he's playing one. Um, that's the guitar yes. that I want. But I've, I've made I've made some mistakes with buying guitars purely because you know you got educated in guitars before you made that purchase. I just basically went out and bought one. Not not massively expensive guitars, but you know entry level kind of guitars that can do the job mm. basically. So, and I also noticed that on your on, on your collection then, because you exhibited um, some of your guitars. I mean, how, how does it, was it the London Guitar Show? Where you took some guitars yeah, they, down? It, yeah, they, they, there are several guitar shows around the country. The one in London tends to be shown at Kempton Park on a Sunday. Um, I have uh, the thing is, when you own one of these uh, old Les Pauls, um, you, you you join quite a rarefied network, and people get to hear yeah. about you and and make contact with you. And of course, you have the choice. You can you can be completely obscure. One of my friends has one. He he's completely off the grid. I know he's got it, but I'm not telling anyone anyone who he is, and so he's completely yes. protected. I've chosen to be a little more networked. And so pe the people who, for example, compiled books of these guitars came to me and said, can you show send us some great photographs? We'd like to cover your guitar. And then one of those guys said, look, I'm going to be showing at the Kempton show. Would you like to show the guitar? And I said, sure, I'll, I, I'm coming anyway. I'll be there all the time. I virtually handcuffed myself to it. So there's no chance <laughs> yeah. going away unless somebody comes along with a pair of belt cutters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, and, and, and then I said to him, look, um, he said, I've got quite a big room, you know, so would you want me to bring a few guitars then? Um, and so I took, uh, uh, you know, a um, smattering of guitars and there were two or three other guys who he knew who brought their collections and it was a brilliant room full of yeah. guitars, you know. So I'm, I, I, over the years, I used to be very leery about telling anybody that I had these things, but now I'm, I'm a, bit, a bit less precious mm. about it and, and, and I take them out. Because the other thing is that the joy that you can impart by sharing these things yeah. with people, you know, when I have friends over... You know, I, I say, you know, play the guitars. Oh, do, do you mind? I said, no, I don't mind at all. I want you to enjoy yeah. them, you know. Um, with people I know very, very well, I even lend them um, guitars from yeah. time to time, you know, for, for, well, for recording. Well, I suppose you, if, you, if you're in that, in that, you've got that kind of mutual respect as well and, and knowledge, knowledge of yeah, what, yeah. what they're actually holding. Uh, that they're gonna, yeah. you know, they're gonna look after it. Um, but I noticed one of, on the uh, what's the the, the 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 presentation piece that you did from the um, London Guitar Show, and you took you took. Yeah. You, I mean, the I suppose you know expensive guitars have expensive parts, and you, I noticed that you took the the knobs off 
one or two of them, didn't you? Kept them in your pocket. <laughs> Specifically, it's the it's it's the tip off the pickup selector. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. And the re- the reason for that is the the tip on my Les Paul when I bought it was cracked. In using it, eventually it cracked and it broke, so I had to find another one. A friend of mine was going out to a guitar show called the uh, the Arlington Guitar Show in Dallas. It's a big, famous guitar show. And I sent him out there with the brief to find me a switch. <laughs> and he said, I'll probably find you one, mate, but it, it, it's going to be painful. You know that? I said, look, mm. I know, I know, I know. He, he phoned me and said, I've got your switch tip. I found it just towards the end of the show. There was one bloke only who had one, a little plastic bag in a mini chest of drawers that you keep screws in. Uh, and I said, okay, okay. Um, so how much was it then? He said, uh, $400. For, for a piece of plastic, yeah. what, three quarters of an inch long, right? I mean, you've got yeah. to be mad. But if you, ha- if you have one of these instruments, you, you want it to be complete. Of you course, to, absolutely. The price. So I've got, I've got, so the thing is that the ori- these originals are, um, they're very valuable. And at guitar shows, the one thing that people always nick is the switch tips. Oh, right? It's just... They're famous for it. So I took the switch tips off my guitars before I displayed them. And I said to everybody, I'm sorry about the switch tips, but I just don't want them to get nicked. As it happens, what I now do is I keep a £12 replica on that guitar and I keep the £400 one in case anyway. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I can't say I blame you for taking that on, sticking, you know, keeping that in your pocket. Oh. And, um, yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, and a lot of the, the, the guitars that you buy then, I mean, do you. If you've got an eye on the market um, and you know yeah. of a guitar, I mean, because I also know that you've bought guitars without seeing them. Uh, yes. Um, well, so, I mean, several things. First of all, I've got a clear view about what I what I want to own. Unfortunately, I've run out of money, which is why I'm not buying anything, because I, I did quite a lot of work on my house, which has basically cleaned me out. And I don't earn anything any longer. So, you know, I'm on a fixed yeah. income. So basically now, you know, uh, I, I can't afford to buy any more of these silly guitars. But Although I have got an eye on, you know, the, the the next guitars that I would buy if suddenly the stork brought a hamper of money down mm. the chimney. Right. So that's that. But yes, I do keep in touch, and obviously, I, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are actively buying and selling these things, so I keep quite in touch with with that way. And I, I often help friends. You know, if, if I know of somebody who wants something and I find something, I phone them up or send them a screen grab and say, "Hey, this is what you're looking for. This is a good one. Have yeah. a look at it." So I put people in touch with with guitars. Of course, the advantage of that is if they buy it, then it becomes quite close to my hand exactly. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a bit of self interest in yeah. there as well. Um, so, so, so yes, I, 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 I do all of that kind of thing and just, just, just keep in touch. And I, I've also put uh, over the years, I've befriended a number of uh, like minded collectors, and we operate under the name of the London Guitar mm. Club. But it's basically a bunch of five or six guys who get together and have a jolly nice boozy lunch every three or four months, you know, lockdowns yeah. permitting. And um, I've got, we've all got to know each other and become such good friends. that We, we actually now, effectively, I've got an expanded and extended family of guitars that I can borrow and call on any time I like, and they can borrow mine. Yeah. And, you know, everybody, everybody's entirely... That's fantastic, isn't no it? Yeah, to have that. Yeah, I mean, having that interest. Have you had any experience of, um, like, pass-offs or fakes or anything? Uh, yeah, and there are an increasing number in the marketplace because, you know, with the value of some of these guitars now, uh, for a guy to be able to go out and get a piece of wood and just apply some serious craftsmanship and, and painting uh, and distressing skills, I mean, they can make a colossal amount of money peddling yeah. fakes. There's, there's, there's a lot of money to be made here, so you have to be unbelievably yeah. careful. Fortunately, most of the fakes, um, most of the fakes, they're, they're just, when, when you're used to living with a real one, 
uh, you can you can tell most of them, most of them pr- pretty easily. Yeah. Um, it, it's quite hard. It's quite hard to be fooled if you if you have sufficient time. If somebody bounces you into a decision in five or ten minutes, you could make a bad mistake. But if you live with something for a few hours or days, mm. you can kind of yeah. Get, yes. And and as a rule of thumb, it's a bit like in anything else. You know, if something doesn't feel right, yeah. then whether or not it isn't right don't go yeah, there yeah no i think that's that's yeah. really good advice yeah because i think there are people that have you know been victim of that and um you know you put yeah. your heart and soul into something and then you get ripped off with uh, you know but i suppose that makes it even more important to you know to know what you're buying no matter what it is not just guitars but anything um yeah but, but of course the question is the question is you know i was there once i mean how do you acquire that knowledge in the yeah. first place it's easy for me now because i'm inside exactly the but there is a story that there's there's a very big collector uh, I won't name him, but there's a very, very big collector of those Sundust Les Pauls. I think he's probably got the most of anybody in the world. He's got over a hundred. Right. <laughs> which, which, I mean, that that that's worth many, many millions of pounds, right? And he, uh, through what he has, people who go around and scout things out for him because he's a multi-millionaire, if not a billionaire. He's a media guy, right? Actually. Um, and uh, one of his scouts went and found him a guitar, and he acquired the guitar for a great deal of money. Turned out to be a fake. Ooh. Um, it, it was a very, very good fake uh, made by one of the most celebrated fakers in America, where the best ones are. And uh, of course, this became a very serious issue because the existence of this fake in his collection effectively infected the whole collection. Wow! Mm. So that had to go. He had to go back, and basically, that got very, uh, very legal, and then actually very, very um, quite dangerous. Mm. He had, he had to go back and basically recoup his money off the maker, and the maker, of course didn't have much of the money mm. so it got very it got quite nasty that's where the way yeah, so, goes. But i mean it's up at the top end it's just because of the values you know it's, it's like it's like the high end of art or antiques i mean it's it's, it's big money so, so is it known how many um gibson les pauls were made in 1958 then i mean is, is there is there a kind of an exhaustive supply of of these these guitars uh, well, there are, there are gibson had um, ledgers uh with all the different shipments in them um Perversely, the uh, ledger that, carry, that covers the period fifty nine to uh, fifty eight to sixty has gone missing. Oh, <laughs> it's a, there's actually a reward of fifty nine thousand dollars out there for anybody who can produce this missing ledger, as it happens. Well. Um, but th- so that rather scuppers thing. But what happened was that Gibson had they, they made the Les Paul from nineteen fifty three, but they were uh, they, in various configurations, but they were gold. They changed from gold to sunburst in response to declining sales for the gold one in 1958, probably around about halfway through the year, maybe a little earlier, maybe May or something like that. That's when the sunburst started to bleed in. So it's known how many Les Pauls were sold in 1958, but it's not known how many of them were pre and post the gold. Yeah, okay. That all of the ones that were made in 59 were made in sunburst. And then in 1960, the Les Paul was, believe it or not, these guitars that are now revered, they were actually not selling very well. And so Gibson uh, discontinued the Les Paul and introduced the uh, pointy-horned red SG model, mm-hmm. SG for solid guitar. The original SGs actually still had the Les Paul um, legend on their headset. Yes, that's right. So yeah. they, were called, they, they were called Les Pauls. And they were introduced in late 58. So you again, you can't say, of all the Les Pauls made in 1958, you can't say how many of them were Les Paul shaped and how many were SG shaped. But the best estimates, there were about 1450 of these Sunburst Les Pauls ever made and shipped. Right, okay. 
Yeah. Of course, the joke is that of the 1,450 ever made, about 4,000 are still in circulation. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> That's, uh, that kind of goes with the territory, I suppose, doesn't it? With the... <laughs> it, it does, it does. I mean, I've, I've seen and played quite a lot of um, everything from honest replicas, you know, in other words, they say, look, I'm a replica, to some counterfeits. Mm. And I've only seen, I've only seen one that really had me scratching my chin. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to bring you back now to uh, your playing these wonderful instruments, Bob. Okay. Um, uh, and you invited me to, um, let's just say it was a significant birthday party of yours. Um, oh, yeah. And you, um, you got a room full of musicians and friends of yours that, um, and this, you know, this is going to, one of the things that I'm always amazed at is how musicians and, you know, good musicians can improvise and you know, uh, my my mind is cast back to you were there, and you you had a, a range of people who just basically jamming in the corner. So you you hired this uh, this pub, didn't you? It was at the Kew Gardens Hotel, wasn't it, over in Kew, Richmond the, or Barnes or somewhere like that? In 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 Kew, Kew. in in the centre of Kew. I mean, basically, I, I I I used to play in a band there. We had a residency playing there on Sunday. Oh right, night. okay, yeah, yeah. And and we used we used to play blues in there, and it was a bloody brilliant gig. It was easy easy to get your gear in and out. Lovely sounding room. Yeah. Good audience, you know, uh, and 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 also, you know, we, we used to play from maybe eight o'clock until ten o'clock Sunday night. So you know, you'd, you'd be home by eleven, so you go to work the next day. It was really yeah. brilliant. Um, so I have a very fond spot for that particular venue. And before they really swanked it up, you see that now they've done all the bedrooms upstairs up. So the last thing you want if you're renting a room for two hundred pounds a night is some bunch of hood- hooligans <laughs> playing blues downstairs. So so the music there, they now have acoustic music, but not really electric music anymore, which is a bit... Oh, yeah. So they, um, yeah, I suppose with food, in, as, back in, yeah, with, with places that do and, food as well, you, if you've got a rock band setting up in the corner, it kind of um, goes right. against the grain of it, doesn't it? But yeah. That's exactly right. Um, but I mean, it's, it's still, it's a bloody brilliant boozer and it's, it is. it's great food. In fact, mm. in fact, I was thinking, it was, it's the last pub I went to before lockdown. I, I went out, I went round on the overground train to meet a friend of mine who lives nearby for a glass of wine and a steak. And it was the night before they locked down and there were four of us in the pub and the train was deserted and it was like they dropped the bomb. Mm. You know? But I had a lovely evening with him and a brilliant you know, glass of wine or two yeah. and a steak down the Kew Gardens Hotel. I'm very fond of yeah, the place. It's, lovely. It's, 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 it's actually only half an hour from where I live. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm around up, up north, but it's, it, it's not far. But you know, I haven't been back since, but it's a great venue. Yeah. Anyway, I, for my 60th birthday, I had two parties. I had lunch for a bunch of my social friends mm-hmm. and I had this jam for all my musician friends. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there were some some youngsters I know, you know, uh, either young, good upcoming musicians or sons of friends who are good. And I also had some of my pro friends come along and play. So I mi- I mixed them all up together yeah. for about two and a half hours. And I, as you say, it was jamming and improvising. It was around. amazing. Common, common rock and blues. blues yeah, because because when I knew I was going to be talking to you today, I, I went back through my phone and I found um, a video that I took of, of the ooh, this band that you ooh. were that were impromptu, as I say, and um, assembled. But there were some fantastic, you know, musicians involved with this thing. And I, I don't yes. know the name of the track that you were playing, or but it was literally a count in, and everybody just kind of in there and it was it was seamless you know i'm actually going to play it so i've managed to i've got, I've got the audio from the video that i'm going to play on the podcast Fantastic. yeah it sounds Brilliant. sounds great um so who who was involved with that then can you remember um if you want to name check some of the people that were there was it dr some somebody the well yeah um a good friend of mine uh dr Ika. That's it. Uh, yep. now, do, now i i 
he's he's Georgian originally, and his his story is a very interesting one because basically he escaped from behind the Iron Curtain. Wow. He and his family. Very interesting story. Mm. He, his real name, I'm going to get this hideous name. <laughs> that's why I didn't it's, attempt it. <laughs> well, that, that's, why Doc, that's why we all call him Doc. But his name is Irakli, which is like the Georgian for Hercules, Irakli. And then his surname is Kikavadze, something like that. Anyway, I became friendly with him because he also has a sideline in building amplifiers and speaker cabinets and did some work for a friend of mine who introduced us and we became very friendly. Right, okay. Um, he, he's a fantastic He is, amazing. Well. Yeah, amazing. So, you know, the, there was Dr. Eka. There's another good friend of mine, Diesel Martin, uh, who's quite local to me up here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, um, I, I, I met him again through mutual friends and, you know, I was saying, you know, what bands have you been in? He said, oh, you wouldn't have heard of me. I had a band back in the 70s. He told me what the band was, and I just started singing the lyrics <laughs> to him. I, I started singing his songs Excellent. back to him. And he, he looked at me in amazement. He said, I don't believe it. You've heard of my band. You remember those songs. I, said, I used to go and see you everywhere. I thought you were fantastic. Amazing. <laughs> I said, you, you, were, you were the guitarist in No Dice. Right. Yeah. And, and they were a great band on the London circuit. They released a couple of albums, which I still listen to. Mm. And anyway, he's a good friend, and he came down, and he on, on that same recording, he did a version of the Mercury Blues on slide guitar, and it was the it was definitely the performance of the night. Well, yeah, it was, it was it was brilliant. I mean, just just being in the room, I was I was absolutely spellbound, I have to say. Um, you know, even though I did do the modern day thing and got my phone out and recorded it, but uh, yeah. but it's there, you know, to, you know, to look back on as well. And the sound is great. So I say, I will, I will, I will play that. In fact, I'm going to play. I'm so glad you I'm did. Gonna, well, I'm going to play it now.
much. All right, Bob, fantastic jam there with um with, with your with your friends and brilliant musicians, absolutely brilliant musicians. And what a sound, as I say, but I don't I've never, you know, quite late to coming into the, the whole music stuff. I just admire where a a bunch of musicians, you know, can just basically drop in and play something, you know, and how 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 do you do that? Do you just say, right, is it in the key of something or, or how do you actually get the track going or name the track, whatever it might be? And everybody just, you know, two, three, four, and everybody kind of comes in and, and, and does their bit. Right. Well, springing off that track that you've just played, I mean, that's a really good example because that's a 12-bar blues. Right, yeah. So, so literally, somebody would just come out. You know, normally, it's led by the singer because someone's got to sing the lyrics and the, the song will dictate whether the song is fast or slow, what key either the original's in or what key the singer's range fits. Sure, yeah. Um, so typically, you'll say, okay, uh, it's a medium shuffle, medium blues shuffle in A. And immediately, we all know roughly what we're playing. And that's, that's how it works. Yeah. Um, blues is simple because it basically works around three chords. But all, all that musicians like this are doing is this is carrying on a tradition the old Sunday afternoon yeah. um, jazz in a pub tradition, yeah. right? The only thing is that blues works to a set, a slightly different and simpler set of musical conventions than jazz. Mm -hmm. But again, if if you were a, an old boy and a saxophone player and you toddled down the local pub and there was a jazz band playing, you might say, "Do you mind if I sit in?" They go, "No worries, mate. Do you know, you know, do you know Autumn Leaves? We play it in B flat." It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it's it's literally like that. Blues is easier because. Loads and loads of blues songs have all got exactly the same format. Yeah. So it's just how fast the nuances of what the drum beat is and what key. Yeah. I mean, for example, that jam I went to um, this week, strangely, because we had a sax and a trumpet player on stage, we were playing in jazz keys rather than guitar keys. And the girl singer who was on with us, wonderful singer, very beautiful too, um, um, she she tended to sing in jazz keys as well. So we were playing in F and B flat, which are less than usual keys for a guitar player. Mostly a guitar player played E, A, D, G. Yeah. But that was great exercise. B flat particularly, lots of guitar players hate. I love it. I, I don't know why, but I really love yeah. it. Um, and of course, the, the horn players were really happy we were playing in, in a key that favoured them. Yeah. yeah. Um, there you go. Yeah, that's, that's how it works. Yeah, and I, again, I, I, do admire, I do admire that. Um, I certainly couldn't do it. You know, I don't have that sort of level of knowledge or, you know, in music or in blues or indeed, you know, being the, the physical capability of playing to that sort of standard. But I, I love it. I what, love listening to it. If you, um, if, if you tried it, it wouldn't take you many weeks yeah, to, get a to get a reasonable knack of it. You know, it, it's, it, it comes remarkably simply. I think, as in many things, it's, it's actually not very hard to do. Yeah. It's quite hard to then go on and do really superbly well. Yes. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, I think you, you, you'd be surprised. At how yeah, I think it might actually, because one of the practice. one of the things that I, the way I've been, you know, as, as a songwriter, I, I um, come up with the kind of melody ideas and stuff. Uh, yeah. And like I'll send that, you know, to Jordan or to a, a session musician um, and they yeah. play something over the top of it. Mm. Um, I just think it's absolutely amazing. You know, something that I've created from a very, very basic acoustic demo to, to where when mm. it comes out as the finished article, it's, it's just absolutely stunning. Well, I think we're coming to the end of uh, our time here, Bob, on the uh, on the podcast, which is a real shame because okay. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed um, chatting too. to Me you. Too. It's um, <laughs> you know font of all knowledge and everything with when it comes to guitars and and of course with your um, advertising career and stuff. 
So you, you on the whole, you, you've had a real, um, you know, you've made a success of absolutely everything that you've you've been in. You know, almost this Midas touch of, you know, whether it be music and guitars or you know, in your career with your Adman hat on and stuff. But have you have you in your um, throughout those years have, have you had sort of you know knockbacks and setbacks and um, disappointments and dare I say failure at stuff that's kind of taught you, you know, life experiences? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I should say, you know, compared to a lot of the people I know, you know, I'm, 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 uh, again, I don't want to sound too smug about it, but you know, I, I'm, I'm very comfortable in life. You know, I've got somewhere nice to live. I've got nice things around me. You know, I've got a lovely, you know, the love of my family and stuff like. But that. as you so said, I'm, you've I'm, worked, I'm, you've worked bloody hard for it, Bob. You know, it's, it's, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed. So you but, should be very proud. The jobs, the jobs that I've had. I mean, certainly that you know, the, the the job I had for the last twenty years was a very, very good job. Very exciting. Yeah very involving all the rest of it not particularly well paid by you know mm. senior executive standards so i'm, I'm not i'm not stinking rich mm. um whereas some of the people i know and hang out are mm. i'm just i'm just pretty ordinary bloke in that sense and actually i'm quite proud of yeah. that um so in that sense when we talk about success i mean some of your listeners i think will think success is measured in in really big boy toys and apart from the guitars you know there's not and, and, and a nice house to live in there's there's no yachts there's no planes you know there's no vast car collection and stuff like that mm. so so you know, I'm in that sense. I consider myself to be, you know, at the, at the top end of regular. But in answer to your question, and I have managed, you know, to, to, to skip most of the puddles in life. But there was a time. Uh, it was a, it was really, you know, a classic kind of feast to famine. Um, in the 80s and into the early 90s, I was uh, a partner in in a very successful advertising agency. To grow bigger, like many businesses of that kind. Um, we sold uh, an equity stake to a, a, a network company. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it was the French advertising network, Havas. And we got to the stage, as pretty much every company in the history of advertising has as they grow. You grow and grow and grow, and then you, you find yourself at the foot of a cliff. If you want to grow more, you have to do it with outside money. You can't do it on your own steam. Mm-hmm. Um, it, pretty much every agency in the history of British advertising has found this. Uh, and, and that... At the time, that came when we were just inside the top 20 of ad agencies. And we'd grown there from nothing, and we'd grown there over about four years. So we were really good. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, so we needed some outside investment. Because, of course, we had this, uh, what we thought was a benign shareholder in Havas, uh, we went to them and we said, you know, to jump this cliff, we need investment. And they said, okay, we understand that. And they then proceeded to fold us unceremoniously <laughs> into another another of their london offices and we were all out in the street yeah gosh now we came we, we came out in the street with a with a wad of money so i'm not i'm not you know i'm not giving you a sub story here mm. but uh it, basically i I'd, I'd i'd flown i'd flown at an almost vertical climb mm. for several years and i'd basically fallen off the top of the conveyor belt yeah and so really nobody nobody wanted to employ me not because i wasn't employable but because it's like well no you, you're beyond that now aren't you so I found myself in a situation where actually I didn't have a, a business idea of my own. There was a recession going on in the economy and I, I couldn't find work. Mm. So um, and it was like that for oh, more than 18 months. Yeah. By the end of which, I was really beginning to lose my nerve and my confidence mm. r- really quite badly. Um, and that was, that was a very dark time. That so was, were you, were you what, in, in terms of, were you getting knocked back for jobs that you were applying for or would you, they just weren't there? Or how, how were you finding it to, to kind of get the next step? So the first thing was that there, there weren't many jobs. Um, 
and certainly not very many suitable jobs. And obviously the incumbents were holding on to them bloody tight yeah. in a recession. Yeah. But the jobs that did come along, I was going for those and I was getting knocked back. Um, and that's what really began to, you know, I began to lose my confidence. But then I did find my way back into a smaller agency that was looking for um, somebody to kind of sort out their, yeah. th th their commercial operation. Mm. Um, and I managed to do that pretty successfully in, 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 in the time I had. And that, that basically patched me together for about a year. Yeah, great. And after that, I then went off and joined a friend of mine who had a small boutique consulting business. Mm -hmm. um, and that really was, you know, you, you really did eat what you could kill yeah. um, in, in those days. But that worked pretty well. And then along came uh, my final job, which was the ISBA job, and that, yeah. that really righted the ship. But that middle period was the trouble. It was, it was made much worse by the fact that, you know, if you worked in advertising in the 80s, I mean, you know, we were pretty disgusting. Our behavior was pretty disgusting. We were all high on <laughs> the hog. Yeah, we're, we're all we're both basically eating and drinking and probably sniffing too much and all that stuff, you know, as, as it was. I mean, and we, we, you know, we were all having a bloody brilliant time. And so when yeah. that stops and it stops and you're suddenly staring into the abyss, it's from very warm to very cold. Yeah, well, I don't want to paint the wrong kind of picture here, but I mean, somebody once did say to me, uh, or whether it's a well-known saying, I don't know, but uh, about advertising, working in advertising is the most fun that you can have with your clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Well, I've never experienced anything like that, but it's um, I've, I've enjoyed my, my time, and it is an interest, interest, interesting uh, industry, and you get to meet some great people, you know, as, as we both know, but... Um, you know, on the whole, as far as careers go, it's 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 a pretty good sector to, you know to be involved with because you you've got that work ethic, but you've also got the fun ethic that goes with it as well. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Which is really that's good. Right. All right, Bob. Right. Well, I think that you probably um, you know wraps up where we where we um, we probably have to tail it off now. Um, in musical terms, actually, before I go uh, or before you go, what about on the music side of things? Have you had any kind of you know down times and disappointment? disappointing because so, essentially you know, failure and disappointment in in a lot of respects kind of makes us doesn't it you you, yes. you 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 grow back from adversity um in whatever shape or form so anything on the music side that has kind of you know knocked you for six or uh you know disappointing times no not really i mean i did i did while, while i was a student i did have a a very brief period when i was a professional guitarist you know when i was about 19 for a matter of months and I realized that this was actually, you know, I just simply wasn't good enough um, to to really make it. Make it what, to be an artist? So or in, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it was a really good choice. I mean, it was a good choice, first of all, because I was actually realizing my own limitations. And secondly, um, because the, the, the life that I fell into, uh, you know, which I discussed earlier, mm -hmm. I mean, was, was, was much more lucrative. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so it was a good choice. Um, but that means I never had any disappointment in that sense. So, I mean, mm. yes, I've, you know, I've had rows in bands and I've had falling out with people and it's like I thought the band was going really well and then it isn't, stuff like yeah. that. But the, that's that's not existential. That's like, that's like you know, oh, that's life. unfortunate. <laughs> that's yeah, life. It's, it's, it's unfortunate rather than, oh, God, now I'm really depressed. Yeah, of course. You know, of it's, course. it's a different order of magnitude. Yeah. All right, Bob. Well, uh, all I have to say now is thank you very much. Um, it's for, been a great for pleasure. I've really enjoyed. Yeah, myself. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. There's some, you know, you've got some great, some great pointers and some some good counsel throughout that uh, interview. You know, both on the professional, um, you know, advertising adman side, and with guitars and your collection and your playing of guitars and love of guitars and love of music. Uh, it's, it's exactly you know the, the kind of person that I want to talk to on the on the Feeling for Sonic podcast because you know with everything nowadays the way it's you've got to kind of go after the whole see the whole picture 
whether it's in business or you know as in an entrepreneurial way of going about doing things and i think a lot of the people that i've had on the podcast and spoken to you know you do have if you're involved in music nowadays you you do have to treat it like a business and it's all encompassing and actually i've forgotten i was going to ask you but i'm going to so i will extend the interview slightly here um a lot of it is obviously done on social media um what's what's your view views on you know how people um communicate we could probably sum this up and close the interview out with your view on social media with advertising on social media and brands, you know, with things like influencers nowadays and that type of thing, but also with people promoting themselves as musicians. Um, and we've already alluded to the fact that there are these trolls out there and the haters as they, as they're called, but um, do, do you think social media is a good thing and, and, and helpful in business and or music? Uh, so for music, I think it's a fantastic. Yeah. Thing. Amazing because it, it, it enables, uh, people to find music and it enables music to find people. Mm. So I think it's a fantastic thing. Uh, before, you know, once upon a time, it was entirely on who you knew and whether, whether your friends had energy and good taste. Yeah. And it was, well, and also right. going and actually going to performances, you know, to, the way to go and to get into yeah. a band was to actually go and see them play live, wasn't it? Be, before the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's right. So, so I think in, in, uh, you know, social media and music, you're a fantastic thing. Amazing. Mm. Um, Social media and other bits of life. Well, we talked about the trolls earlier. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it has a dark side. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bluff about that. I know some people can get very upset about things that are said online. Mm. For, for me, I take a sticks and stones approach. Mm. If I see somebody really kicking off and it's just offensive, I just turn the other way. Yeah, yeah. you have to. Otherwise, it just, right. just drives you insane. But it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. upset, so, it's so, upsetting as well, Bob, isn't it? You know, the, well, it, it, got... but I think, I think this, the upset is an interesting word because the world is full of people who seem to get up in the morning with a view to being upset. Yeah, yeah. yeah there is and some, yeah. I have to say, they're not the people I have the most time for. No, this no. Time. Right? The, the, you know, the did you spill my pint brigade. Yeah. Right? People looking for a fight. Mm. Right? Really, really, I'm afraid my life's too short mm. for that. So I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Go away. Mm. Go away. Don't bother me. Yeah. So that side of social media, I think, is really unfortunate. And the other side of social media, which I think is more than unfortunate, I think the jury's out on this, is the interference in democracy. Mm. Right. That, I, I think, whether or not it's Trump pumping his agenda on social media or whether it's Putin trying to interfere mm. in American or even British politics. I find well, there was a, there was me. a view, yeah. I mean, there was a view that Trump got elected on Facebook, basically. Well, Facebook exactly. I, and, yeah, yeah. I, f I find that at best worrying, at worst deeply sinister. So that, yeah. that that's that's it. Now, as an advertising medium, mm. right? It, if if basically since since the the times of the pyramids, if you wanted to put a placard on the side of your camel, right? <laughs> you know about about you know I've got some I don't know I've just grown some fresh melons or something, whatever you like, yeah. you know. It's 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 fair, fair fair play and fair game, and in that sense, I've got no criticism of um, the 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 online channels and social media amongst them as a, um, a as a channel. Mm. I do have a view that I think that for a number of systematic reasons, which it, it's too long to go into here, I think that the industry has gone far too far down the online channel. Mm. Right mm. at the moment, the online channels, even during uh, the pandemic, are continuing to grow, and the other media are hurting. Yeah. One of the successes of the online channels is they freely republish all the journalism that is created around the world, which I think is inequitable and wrong. And only now are there some possible restorative steps to redress that balance. But 
I think that the world has gone too far down the online channel, but I think it is a fantastic advertising medium yep. per se. I just think that good old telly yep. or a really, really fantastic billboard mm. are actually fundamentally a bit better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's an interesting view. Um, I'm not going to argue with you, by the way. <laughs> but, and by the way, I, I should say that some of the biggest advertisers in the world on television and billboards are Google, Apple, Amazon. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I suppose the only thing I would say about you know TV advertising, I know we're straying into a different territory here, but you know, if you think about the proliferation, I mean, certainly with magazines as well and, and, and uh, TV channels and the number of yeah. channels that are available to us nowadays, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's almost like saturation, isn't it? But... Um, I don't know. Um, we could discuss this till the cows come <laughs> home, as they say, Bob. Yeah. So thanks. Another time. Another time. Um, over <laughs> a pint, hopefully. Um, Delightful. But, I'd love to. But yeah. So thanks again, Bob, for for joining joining me on the Feeling Versonic podcast. You've been a great guest. Really interesting well, to talk to. Thank you for to. having me. And thank you for sharing your uh, and being candid, you know, as well with with some of the stories that you've that you've shared with us along the mm. way. Um, all you know, congratulations and best of luck with the guitar show. I think it's great. So um, I'll put the link to that in the show notes so that people know where to, um, you know, where to, where to find it on YouTube, um, right. and they can tune into some of the episodes on there. That really interesting. Mm-hmm. If you're into guitars, check out the guitar show. And mm-hmm. um, okay, have the great weekend, and uh, hopefully I'll I'll speak to you. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye bye. My thanks again to Bob for joining me on the podcast. Really hope that you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or you would like to comment on any of the topics we have discussed, you can do so by sending me a voice message or a text message via the link in the show notes. Please do subscribe and or leave a review on Apple Podcast if you would be so kind. My name is Stephen Connor and you have been listening to the Feeling Masonic podcast. Till next time, keep calm. Stay safe and God bless.